Okay, so who is the guilty one who suggested that we sing that song? That was you? Thank you. Thank you, John. It was very appropriate. I had not heard the song, so I had not chosen it either. But very appropriate for uh, the message this morning. Let's turn uh, to Luke chapter 6. We're back in our study of Luke again. Luke chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 12, but before we do, um, I just want to tell you about this event that has taken place over the la- every year for the last 12 years, and I'm sure it will happen again this year. Billionaire Warren Buffett uh, auctions off an opportunity for anyone to bid for a lunch with him. And so he is actually one of the richest men in the world. If you don't know who he is, he is one of the richest men in in the world, a billionaire, has made uh, most of his money through investments in the stock market. And um, so 12 years ago, he decided to auction off a lunch with him, the privilege of eating lunch and asking him any financial question you wanted to ask. And people go to town, they bid against each other for this uh, privilege. Um... Warren Buffett obviously doesn't need the money, so he, whatever the money is that he gets for it, he turns over to some kind of a um, charity, and um, then he has lunch. The one who wins the auction, though, has to pay a king's ransom for this privilege. In uh, 2011, the winning bid was $2.6 million dollars for the privilege of having lunch with Warren Buffett. For lunch. Someone has estimated that the restaurant they ate at could have served 53,000 New York steak dinners uh, for that price. I actually called McDonald's in Hayward yesterday and I asked them how many Happy Meals they could supply for that and they said uh, 837,579. The highest bidder felt that it was well worth the investment to pay that outrageous price for the advice of a financial investor. Did he walk away richer? No, he was $2,630,000 poorer. Did he walk away any happier? I doubt it. People today are searching for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for purpose. And we all want to succeed in life. We all want to be happy in life. And we can be happy. But true happiness does not come from a buffet lunch with Warren Buffett. Spelled the same, by the way. Buffet and Buffett. Little play on words there. The secret of true happiness is found in the scripture that we want to study this morning. However, the secret to happiness may surprise you. And it may challenge the way you think. And it may challenge the way you live. And who would know better than God himself? What would bring true happiness to our hearts and to our lives? The God of all creation, the one who created you, I think he has something to say about it. And I think he knows what it would take. And so if you could have lunch with Jesus today, what would he say to you? What advice would you hear? And if upon hearing his advice... Would you take it if it meant 
that it would bring true happiness to you? Let's find out. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Jesus went out to a mountain to pray. And it says, and he prayed, or it says he continued all night in prayer to God. I believe that, uh, I, I object to, uh, to something Ron said on Wednesday, um, I think what Ron said was that the longest recorded prayer, and I would agree with that in the scripture, was Solomon. But the longest prayer was actually here. Jesus prayed all night, all night in prayer. It's not the only time that Jesus spent long seasons in prayer, but this one we want to look at today. Does it shock you that Jesus felt compelled to pray all night long? I know people stay up all night to party, and I know that people stay up all night to gamble, and I know people stay up all night to conduct business, and I know people stay up all night to do all sorts of things, but who would spend all night in prayer? It was Jesus, God the Son, who sensed an urgency to pray all night long. But what would compel him to do such a thing? I think the answer is actually found in John chapter 17. And we're not going to look at it today, but just kind of tuck that in the back of your mind and take a look at it later. John 17, I think, actually answers the question for us. But here's a summary. Jesus looked to the future. And he knew that he was going to die on the cross for our sins. That he would rise again the third day and that he would ascend to his Father in heaven. He also knew that the world would need to hear this good news, the good news of salvation through uh, his death on the cross in order to be saved. And he was going to entrust this task of spreading the gospel to a handful of men, to people. He wasn't going to leave the job to angels. They might have done a better job. But to a group of feeble, fearful, failing men. And yet the Lord would use this insignificant group to turn the world upside down. As it says in Acts, it really called for prayer, didn't it? If the Lord considered the task of evangelism of such importance so as to, sp to, so as to spend a whole night in prayer, how much more should I pray? How much more should we pray? The professing church has for the most part Abandon the prayer meeting. Our own attendance tells us how much value we place on that meeting and on prayer. But even when we attend the prayer meeting, I think sometimes we miss the mark. I think we do sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. There have been times in my life when I have been involved in long seasons of prayer. Uh, sometimes for important things in my life, issues that are going on, or, or what have you, 
I know that uh, at one point in my life I spent the better part of a week in fasting and prayer over the issue of whether I should get married or not. There was nobody on the horizon. I didn't know any particular person. I didn't, I didn't go off fasting and prayer and say, Lord, should it be Susie or, 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 or Jill? You know, I, There was nobody. And I said, Lord, do you want me to marry at all? What would you have me to do? And uh, I, I really earnestly wanted to know his will and his purpose. It's a big, it's a major decision of life. It has uh, enormous ramifications. And so we prayed, and the Lord answered. My first exposure to an all-night prayer meeting, I can still remember it. It was in a small upper room of a home near where we were living. It was during my year at the DITP, and some of my classmates probably were reading this passage, and they suggested that we, hey, who wants to spend all night praying? I looked at them in disbelief, and I said, what would we pray for? I mean, honestly, all night? And they said, yeah, come on. And so we did. We, we spent the night in prayer. And I remember praying for things. As the, as the time went on through the night, I thought we would run out of things to pray for. We didn't. And we began to pray for astounding things to me, things that I never would have even thought to pray about. I've never entered my mind to pray about these things before. I remember one of the prayers, Lord, tear down the iron curtain. Now, for a lot of you young people, that does, that's totally meaningless. Iron curtain, what's that? But when we were growing up, the greatest enemy of the United States and the world were communist countries. Russia, in particular, was the um, axis of evil, you know. And, uh, but from the Christian standpoint, there were millions and millions of people behind these iron block curtains, these communist countries, within these communist countries, who were forbidden to hear the gospel message. The government kept them from hearing. They would teach evolution. They would teach uh, humanism. They would teach all these other things, but they forbid their people to hear the gospel message. And we prayed, Lord, bring down the iron curtain. I said, wow, I'd never thought of praying that before. Lord, let the gospel go into Russia. Let the gospel go into East Germany. Let the gospel go into all of the communist-dominated countries. Little did I know that at that time the Lord was hearing our prayers. Small upper room that night. A group of nobodies literally crying over people we had never met before. You know, thinking of, wow, we've had every opportunity to hear the gospel message and believe. And these people haven't even been given that chance. That they might hear the, have the opportunity to hear about the Savior of the world. Some years later, June 12, 1987, I heard President Ronald Reagan's speech as he stood on the west side of the um, Berlin Wall. I don't know if you know this or not, but Germany used to be divided in two. And there was a wall, literal, a literal wall, that divided the free Germany from the communist Germany. And you could not go. Many people tried climbing over the wall, getting in a balloon and, and flying over it, and they were killed for, for attempting to escape. And um, <clears throat> so the Berlin Wall became kind of a symbol of communism. It was a symbol of, uh, of being held back. And uh, so anyway, Ronald Reagan was there on the west side, on the free side of the Berlin Wall, 
And uh, as he stood outside the Brandenburg Gate near the Berlin Wall, he appealed to the then leader of, of uh, Russia, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I said, wow. That's a pretty bold statement from a free leader of, 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 of the leader of the free world to be asking the communist leader to do. Tear down communism is basically what he was asking for. 29 months later, on November 9th, 1989, the gate was open and the wall was torn down. It was a symbol of an openness that, and greater freedom for the gospel in the former communist bloc countries. Now, I don't credit Ronald Reagan for this. I credit the Lord Jesus. At the time I saw, uh, or at that time I saw the German people beginning to dismantle the wall piece by piece, and they were rejoicing. And I was reminded of that night when a group of nobodies <laughs> prayed. And we asked the only one who could do the impossible to do the possible, and he did it. Of course, we were not the only ones who ever prayed this way. <laughs> but I couldn't help but remembering that time. Now, I don't want to live on triumphs of the past. I want to see a fresh working of God, the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts, in our lives, here and now in this generation. I would love to see our young people and our older people too be so concerned about the lost souls of men and women that they would dedicate themselves, that we would dedicate ourselves to a night in prayer, asking the Lord to do the impossible again. What do you think would happen if we as an assembly spent a night in prayer and pled with the Lord for all of our wayward children? What do you think would happen in our assembly if we would spend a night in prayer and ask the Lord to save all of those who have been through these doors over the years and have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. For our own family members who are still unsaved, for our sons, for our daughters, for our grandchildren, those whose lives have caused us shame and much grief and concern, would it not show our dependence upon God? Would it not show how serious we are to see our loved ones saved? What if we prayed that the Lord would deliver us from our adversary, the devil, and that he would loose and free these lost souls from his clutches? Didn't Jesus say, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith in the earth? What would happen? Suppose we spent a night in prayer and pled with the Lord for countries that are still closed to the gospel. The Iron Curtain may have fallen in some countries, but the Islamic Curtain still remains. Millions of people will live and die 
without ever hearing the gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. There are countries today still who defy the living God. And they will not let their people hear the good news. They will not allow people to evangelize. They will not allow people to, to share the gospel uh, with their people. Can we not cry out as David did? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? But like David, we must be schooled in the, in the, or trained in the school of faith. As I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, I appeal to my own heart too. Will we go out at midnight to see the latest release of the next Hollywood film about the terrorists, the Muslim terrorists who are going to try to defeat the United States in some kind of a plot? And yet we will not spend a night in prayer over the same people, the Muslim people who are lost and have been cheated out of an opportunity to hear the gospel because they happen to have been born in an Islamic country. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. The next morning, Jesus chose 12 men uh, to follow him as disciples. Notice he didn't choose 12,000. He didn't choose 1,200, not even 120. He chose 12. And one of them was a traitor. It's not the number of people that is of great concern to the Lord. But like the Marines, he is looking for a few good men. God is looking for a few good men. Remember how God reduced Gideon's army down to a few? Do you remember how Daniel stood against a king? Just him and his buddies. You know, really, there is more glory for God when he uses a few instead of a crowd. And they were young men, too. I know you've all seen paintings of the disciples and their old, aged, decrepit men with long beards. But that's not what we're talking about here. These men were probably in their 20s. Jesus was only 30, and most of them were probably younger than he was. Their greatness was not in themselves, but was their connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were men who followed the Lord and in effect said this, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Now when they, and later their enemies concluded in Acts 4, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Their greatness was their association with the Lord Jesus Christ. And our greatness, if there is any, is the same. It's not to do with ourselves, but to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the disciples had already made radical choices in life. Choices from which there was no return. There was no turning back. Some of them had already abandoned their jobs. I think of Peter and his uh, partners in fishing, James and John. Probably Andrew, too. Remember when we looked at Peter? How he, on his best fishing day ever, he left it all and followed the Lord Jesus. Then there was Matthew. We heard about him already, forsaking his government job as the tax collector. When they made these choices, 
they put themselves in a position where they would become dependent upon the Lord. And as we learned this morning in the Lord's Supper, the Lord cared for them. When we cast all our care upon Him, He cares for us. He did not fail them. I remember traveling to Europe in the summer of 1980 with Bill McDonald and a few others. We traveled to 12 or 13 countries that summer, and uh, we went to preach the gospel and to serve missionaries and and, uh, the churches in these countries. We traveled in a beat-up old Volkswagen. (laughs) That was a matter for prayer. We got... uh, Side story, we got to the Swiss Alps and the engine conked out on us. And I can remember going to the side of the road where there was a telephone for emergency services and Bill was trying in the best way he could to speak to them in the language, I think it was French. And uh, he you know, speaks English and they speak French and we're in a German Volkswagen and Bill says, it's kaput! <laughs> and that he understood. <laughs> We um, had a blanket or a sleeping bag, and we tented at the side of the road wherever we could stop for the night. And uh, it struck me yesterday as I, was, <laughs> as I was thinking about this, Bill was 63 years old at the time. 60, how many are under 63 here? Yeah, a good chunk of you. Okay, 63 years old at the time, sleeping in a tent anywhere we could find find a spot at the side of the road for three months. One night, we, uh, we, our, our diet consisted of uh, French bread and, and cheese. Man, I got to hate French bread and cheese. <laughs> no, actually, it's not bad. It really isn't. One night, we pinched, pitched a tent in a vineyard in France, and uh, just before falling asleep, Bill said, Don, he said, would you ever consider forsaking your family's business and and going full-time in the work of the Lord. I hadn't really thought of it before. And um, he promptly fell asleep, and I stayed up the rest of the night. I don't know if I prayed all through the night that night, but I remember staying awake a lot of that time. And I returned home to my elders, and I presented it to them, and eventually they released me to the work of the Lord. And then two years after I'd been working down here, they commended me to, uh, to the work. After I left the DITP, they broadened their commendation that I might serve the Lord as a free agent, as the Lord directs, they said. And for more than 30 years, I've served the Lord, sometimes full-time, sometimes in a tent-making job. But as the Old Testament servant could say, when freedom was available to him, I love my master. I will not go out free. I will serve him forever. You know, I believe that there are some here today who don't have to work for corporations anymore. It's not a necessity to you. There are some here who don't have to work anymore to make ends meet. They already have enough to live on for the rest of their lives and beyond. I'm not advocating laziness. I'm not advocating slothfulness or retirement sightseeing trips. But if you, can, if you can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness with the rest of your life, 
why would you continue working for amalgamated paper clips, as Bill used to say? There are some here this morning who could and who probably should say, Lord, as we sang this morning, here am I. Send me. Send me. Send me into your fields to sow the seed of the gospel. Send me into your fields to reap a harvest. Lord, let me make the last years of my life be dedicated, undistracted to you. You know, I believe that if we had 12 men who were filled with the Holy Spirit, who were set free to serve the Lord, who, men who were unhindered by the constraints of this life, men who were solid in the Scriptures, men who were sold out for Jesus Christ, men who were devoted to the preaching of the gospel, men who would, like the twelve of old, turn the world upside down. It's not because we don't have the men. It's because of the distractions of life. But brothers and sisters, if not now, when? When? He says, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. You know, it's interesting. The, the first lesson that he taught the twelve was a practical lesson to show God's heart of compassion for the hurting. Because in Luke 6.17, the next part, it says this, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. Now, it's interesting to note that apparently there were both Jews and Gentiles present. A great number, or multitude, it says, of people came from Judea and Jerusalem and from Tyre and Sidon. Obviously, Judea and Jerusalem were Jewish areas, but Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities, pagan cities, Gentile cities. When God came to planet Earth, the angel announced to the shepherds abiding by their, with their flock at night. He said that he brought great ti- or, uh, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Then when the multitude of angels joined in the chorus, they said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. God's purpose in sending his Son was not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That gospel message that we have still goes out today. The gospel message is for all people, Jews, Gentiles, Muslims, all people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The good news is that Jesus came to earth to die in your place and to receive in his body the punishment that you deserved for your sins. The good news is that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven, and you will be on your way to heaven. You will be saved from hell. 
Listen, Jesus came into the world of suffering, and he had compassion on all the people who came uh, to him. There were people who were sick, and in this world today, disease is rampant. Cancer, heart disease, AIDS, and many are dying without Christ as their Savior. And then there are people that came to him who had evil spirits, and today, through the use of drugs and involvement with the occult, we have people who are demon-possessed or tormented by evil spirits. But no matter what your condition, no matter what your ailment, no matter what you face in life, Jesus is able to heal, he is able to deliver, and most importantly, he is able to save your soul. Today, do not harden your heart, but come to him just like these people came to him. They were healed. And you can have your sins forgiven today. What a lesson. It was a great lesson that the disciples learned that day. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. But how can the world be reached? <laughs> we simply don't have the resources for that, do we? Do we? You know, we think sometimes that money is what we really need. After all, how will the work be supported? We think that if we just have another picnic or we set up a food kitchen, we'll be able to reach the world. We think that we need better entertainment. That'll attract the crowds. Or we think that maybe if we just set up a good PR uh, guy, you know, we, our name would be recognized and people would flock to us. That might have been the advice given by Warren Buffett to the guy that spent $2.63 million for how he should succeed. But listen to the advice from Jesus. It's quite shocking, actually. Listen as he instructs the disciples on how to evangelize the world. Luke 6:20. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. <clears throat> it's absolutely revolutionary. It is totally contrary to everything that we have been taught, everything that we think, everything that we know, but it's true because God said it. Blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It means to be supremely happy. Supremely happy. It means to be favored by God. And Jesus said that those who are poor, hungry, crying, and hated are blessed. What did Jesus mean when he said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God? Is it really a blessing to be poor? Well, Jesus is not speaking about being poor 
because you're lazy and will not work. I know that because the scripture says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Okay? So he can't mean that. It could mean that if we become poor because of circumstances beyond our control, we do enter into a special place of God's favor. That's clear enough from the scripture. And uh, it does tell us in the scripture that God makes rich and he makes poor. And then the Lord teaches us both in the law and in the gospels that we are to remember the poor and that we are to care for the poor because that's on God's heart. The scripture is clear that we should care for those who are poor and not harden our hearts against them. But it seems to me that the Lord is not speaking about those who are poor because of laziness or because of sudden calamity. Rather, he is speaking about those who are poor by choice. When Andrew and Peter and James and John and Matthew and all the other disciples followed Jesus, they left all behind and they forsook all and they followed him. They had no normal means of support, but what they did have was better. They had Jesus. God, who owns everything, would care for them. The scripture says that he opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. And he took it upon himself to provide for all their needs. Last Sunday, Charlie preached from the Sermon on the Mount. Ron read a portion of it again on Wednesday. And it talks in that passage about how we don't need to be concerned about what we eat, what we wear, how we'll live in life. He'll take care of all of those things. This passage is similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's also very different. In the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here it doesn't say that. It says, Blessed are the poor. And that's what he means. If the Lord calls you, and you leave all to follow him, you don't have to worry about money, about clothing, food, tomorrow, retirement, health care, old age security, death benefits. Listen, he fed and clothed more than a million people in a desert. How will he not care for you, O ye of little faith? The happiest place on earth. Walt Disney would have you believe it's Disneyland. I've been there. It ain't that happy. <clears throat> the happiest place on earth is in the heart of a man whose, Lord is the, whose God is the Lord. Why do we live in such a way that we don't have to depend upon him? We do that. Our society kind of teaches us to do that, to be independent of everybody and everything, but, but really we kind of make props all around us. And the Lord is in the business of kicking those props out from under us. And it's a good thing, too, that we might be dependent, more fully trust uh, in Him. Well, you might say, if I step out in service for the Lord, <clears throat> I'll be poor. Actually, the Lord says, you'll be blessed. That's what He says. You'll be happy. Sacrificial living for the sake of the gospel gives you in return the kingdom of God. You're in the place 
where God rules. And under his rule, he has promised that if we cast all our care upon him, he will care for us. Now, the flip side of this is also given a few verses later. It says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. There are those who refuse to give up anything for the sake of the kingdom of God. They live a selfish life, and the benefit of their labor is only for themselves and only for this life. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Think about what we are doing. Will we serve a corporation our entire life and give God the leftovers? Will we serve the government with the best years of our life and be too old to serve the Lord? Will we miss the greatest blessing that God has intended for us because we just wouldn't step over to the other side? About a week ago, I took the family on a uh, short trip, and one of the places we stopped was a little town called Calico. Calico is in San Bernardino County. It's a ghost town. I don't know if you've ever visited a ghost town or not, but I find them fascinating kind of interesting. They're a snapshot of uh, life as it used to be. And it it makes me feel kind of sad in a way when I'm I'm there because I think of all the lives that came and went through this town and now all that's left is just a bunch of buildings and memories. But it's still interesting for me to go. All that's there now is just a tourist shop or tourist stop, I should say. But it was once a thriving town because Silver was being mined in the hills. In fact, you've heard of the California gold rush. Well, this was the California silver rush. It was the place uh, to be in the late 1800s. I reflect, as I was there, I I kind of reflected on, on what it would be like for somebody to come and visit the places that I lived 100 years from now. Come and visit this place 100 years from now. Would there be a church still standing? Would it be like visiting the abandoned ghost town? What would the stories um, be then? Uh, What what stories would be told then of us? Well, while we were there, uh, we decided to uh, take a tour through the abandoned silver mine. Um, It's the only one that's actually open to the public because every, every other mine there is dangerous, so they have one that you can actually pay and go and and visit, and and we did. This this mine was actually dug by hand in 1884. There were two brothers of uh, of a group of uh, seven kids known as the Mulcahy brothers, and uh, who staked a claim on this mountain, and it became known as the Maggie Mine, and they worked that mine for 20 years. 20 years they dug that mine by hand. And for 20 years they pursued the riches that were just a little further into the mine, you know? Now they made enough to live on and and obviously they had food to eat and so on, but they never found the mother load. For every day for 20 years, that elusive treasure seemed to be just another shovel full away. 
They followed every vein they could through the mine, and they came up empty. They worked at it every day. It was their job. And it was where they slept every night. After 20 years of hard labor, they just gave up and abandoned the mine, and they moved away. The story is told that a short time later, a young boy was playing on the top of the mountain right above where they had been mining. And as he was playing on the top of this hill, he tripped on a stone, a rock on the ground, and he picked it up, and he was curious, and he brought it back to town. And he showed somebody, and they realized that this was a chunk of silver, ore. And they, he brought them back to where he found it, and someone struck a claim on that hill and decided to dig straight down from where this silver chunk was found. And they hit the mother load. And it was the most productive mine in the area. Millions of dollars of, of uh, silver was eventually pulled out of that area. The tourists, or the, the, it was a recorded message, but the tour said that when they went down, they realized that they weren't far away from the Maggie mine tunnels that had already been dug by hand for them. And they dug just 20 feet over, and they came into the mine shafts, the tunnels that had been dug by the McCahey brothers. They drilled 20 feet over, and they used his or their um, tunnels to carry out all the silver. Um, it struck me, though, as I heard the story of how many people spend their lives like the McCahey brothers. They spend the best years of their life, 20, 30, 40 years going to work, bringing home enough to live on, but missing the greatest blessing that God has for them if they had just stepped over another few feet, they would have seen it. They would have had it. There is a mother load in this mine. Jesus revealed it to us here. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The Lord wants to win the lost, and he does so by sending out poor men who have their eyes fixed on eternal treasures. Next, he said, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. When the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness, God ruled. He took care of all their needs. And when they were about to enter the promised land, you remember they had clothes that didn't wear out, shoes. I, I, I still want to find that shoemaker. Forty years in the wilderness and their shoes didn't wear out. Their sandals didn't wear out. Eight months and my shoes were shot, you know. But the Lord said a, a very interesting thing, and it struck me many, many times in life. When things seem to be going well, when, things, when, I, when I don't seem to have need, the Lord said to the children of Israel right before they crossed into the promised land this, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, 
lest you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. See, I believe that the Lord wants us to be dependent upon him. I confess that when I am full and satisfied and everything is going well, I need this warning. I need this warning. Beware, lest you forget the Lord your God. I have prayed on numerous occasions, Lord, let me live in such a way that I am in constant dependence upon you. And we've made life choices at times where we've put ourselves in that dependence upon the Lord because I could see my heart going astray. Lord, if it's necessary, let me be poor. Let me be hungry. Let me cast my care upon you, for I know you care for me. The Lord knows our hearts. The Lord knows my heart. And I am in a happier state when I'm in dependence upon him. And I see the hand of the Lord providing, because the Lord knows how prone I am to forget him. That's why he states this warning, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Next, in verse 21, he says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, that, that's got to be an oxymoron. <clears throat> we, we have one like it. It's, it's this, good grief. Okay? Maybe that's where it came from. How can you be happy when you're weeping? How can that be? The Lord is sending his disciples into a world filled with sorrow. And he wants men who are sober-minded, serious, not comedians. He wants men to, to be aware of the heartbreak all around them. And who will weep with those who weep. Yes, they'll rejoice with those who rejoice too. But when you think of your own personal sin and the consequences of sin all, of around, all around us, how can you not weep? When you think about souls who are on their way to hell, how can you not weep? Yet in the midst of this weeping, there is a blessing from God and a promise that you shall laugh. After long days and long nights of sorrow, laughter will come as we enjoy the blessing of God. Weeping may endure for a night, the scripture says, but joy comes in the morning. I can't help remember uh, Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. It says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. That passage reminds us of the incident where um, Israel was in captivity in Babylon. And they were being freed to go back to the land. And as they left Babylon, they were allowed to take with them grain, seed. And as they got back to the promised land, they could do one of two things with this seed. They could either crush it and grind it into flour and make bread for their immediate needs, or they could take that same seed and sow it in the, in the ground. If they sowed it in the ground, they'd have to wait for a harvest. And so they would have to make a decision. Do I use it for my immediate needs and bake bread? Or do I deprive myself of my basic necessities so that there's a greater harvest in the end? And as they reached into their seed pouch and they began to scatter the seed on the ground, they wept. 
they were taking bread out of their own mouths. But it says, but soon the summer would be over and the harvest would be gathered in and doubtless it was then that they would come again rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Now you may deprive yourself of riches or food or other enjoyments of life for the sake of the gospel, for the Lord's sake, and you will not lose your reward. The harvest will come, sinners will repent, prayers will be answered, and souls will be saved. Oh, that God would give us wise men who see that they are willing to sow in tears and wait patiently to reap in joy. In Galatians, Paul says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The Lord issued a warning here too. He said, Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Those who go through life as though it were one great party and live only for their own pleasures and their own fulfillment and their own amusement, there is a day coming of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our time is up. But let me just say uh, the scripture here to you in verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Really, I believe that's the key to this whole passage, that one phrase, for the Son of Man's sake. That's why we're doing it. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did uh, to the prophets. The key to to true blessing, whether we are poor or hungry, or weeping, or hated, is for the Son of Man's sake. And if we do it for His sake, we are blessed indeed. We enter into the blessings of God, into the favor of God, and we are happy people indeed. Let's pray. Lord, as we see Your, see your words and, and uh, read them afresh today, Lord, we see how... Um, callous our hearts can become. Lord, give us a fresh uh, view of what's really on your heart. I think of the gospel going forth, the message of salvation. We pray, Lord, that we would do all that we can in this short life that we have to serve you and that we might uh, receive from you that blessing, that blessedness that only comes Uh, from you. We just pray, Lord, that you would use these words this morning from yourself um, to, to speak to us about our lives, about our choices, about our decisions from here on. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The meeting is dismissed.